Just playing around. No, playing around's good, huh? Well, is that good? Everybody doing well? You're not sure? Kind of. If you're new here, it's great having you here. We certainly do like to celebrate Jesus. Obviously, uh, everybody wants to know who's going to win the election, right? I'll tell you one person who knows, though. God knows. And uh, the only thing I'm really going to say about it, uh, there, there's a phrase, I think we were going to put it in the front of the church, but if you, you know, you're not happy with the elephant or the donkey, then try the lamb, right? Right, right. So, so. But on a more serious note, we are going to show the atheist delusion and... I'll tell you, if you want to see this country turn around, what's most important is that, that we share the good news because that's what transforms hearts. And so we're going to have a great opportunity, not this Friday, but the next Friday, we're showing the atheist delusion. It's very well done. It's a little over just an hour. And what I want to challenge you to do is pray about, because remember, God desires that none should perish, all right? He desires that none should That includes your neighbors and your co-workers, and, and some family members. Pray about one person you could bring and sit next to. So I'm going to ask you to save everybody, but just pray about one person that you could bring, all right, and uh, that you would sit next to. We're going to, pr- it's free, everything's free. There's going to be free hot dogs, free nachos, free, you know, uh, whatever, popcorn, candy, soda. So whatever your heart's desire it's going to be there. So there's no reason, you know, that a person wouldn't, wouldn't come. And so it's going to be a tremendous opportunity. This is really well done, the atheist delusion. So I'm challenging you to pray about and to bring one person uh, to this. Um, also, do want to remind you, Thanksgiving is coming up. And, uh, you know, holidays can be a rough time for people. And that's one reason why we begin to open the church up for Thanksgiving, because we didn't want to have anyone not have a place to go. So we're, I think we're going to be having it from like 1 to 3.30. So if you know of anybody, uh, you, you're welcome to join us, but if you know of anybody that does not have a place, please, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. I think Jeff mentioned this. We do need, you know, a number, but we would certainly love to have them, all right, and you also. So remember, there's a sign-up in the back. All right, I don't know about you, but I kind of like to walk through cemeteries. Anybody like to do that? All right. Well, everybody knew I was a little strange, but all right. I guess that settled that. Uh, But there's a lot of interesting things you can learn, by the way, if you go through a cemetery and reading the tombstones. And there was this one pastor, he's as weird as I am, his name is Walter Chelberg, and he was walking through a cemetery. He read this tombstone. It said this, Jane Smith... She lived with her husband 50 years and died in a confident hope of a better life. That's, a, that's actually a, that's a real tombstone. Um, you know, uh, and um, one thing I guess we do know about Jane Smith is that her marriage probably wasn't that good, all right? It just obviously didn't meet her expectations. Well, enough with the silliness. This morning I'm going to continue our study in the book of Philippians, and I want to look at a short prayer, but it's a very powerful prayer, and so I've entitled the message this morning, A Great Prayer. Father, I just thank you for everyone that is here, and I think the word this morning, Lord, is going to bring uh, 
great hope for many people as we look at this prayer of Paul. So I just ask that you would give us a spirit of expectancy, soft hearts to receive, ears to hear. I ask that you would fill me up because we, Lord knows, don't need to hear a word from me, but a word from you. May your word bring the life that it intended. And I thank you for each and every person here. They're not here by accident. You wanted them to hear this word. And I just thank you for the fruit that would be born. And I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think there's any really greater prayer you can pray that if you honestly open your heart and say, Lord, I want more of you. I mean, you would put a smile on the face of the God of the universe. If you honestly just said, Lord, you wake up in the morning, I just want you. We're going to get into this. I just want more of you. Now, Paul's got a great prayer this morning, so I want to look at that. And uh, so, Skip, if you can just put up those verses, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 9 and 11 through 11. We're going to key in on that. And he says this, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, with the result that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And I find that prayer rather interesting because really, The essence, the heart of that prayer is love. Paul is praying that the Philippians will love. You know, it's interesting, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Now, of course, the problem that we have in this culture is defining the word love. In fact, we've become rather sloppy in our thinking. The vast majority of people think that love is a feeling. It's oceans of emotions, right? Other people see love as acceptance or tolerance. I'm okay and you're okay. Uh, Actually, that's not true. The, the, the real phrase should be, I'm not okay and you're not okay would be more closer to the truth. And of course, my favorite one is love is never having to say that you're sorry. Now, you may be too, not old enough to recognize that line, but that was one of the dumbest lines in movie history from Love Story. The Apostle Paul, though, is going to tell us exactly what love is. He does. He defines it very clearly and succinctly in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 4 through 7. Basically, he says that love is a verb, but I just want to go through it very quickly again to remind us about what love is. So uh, we look at, if you have your Bibles, you can certainly turn to 1 Corinthians 13. By the way, these verses, we ought to know backwards and forwards, this is the essence of Christianity. This is who Jesus Christ is. It says that love is patient. Skip, can you put up the picture? All right, that's enough said there. Some of you need to think about it. You'll get it, you'll get it. All right, all right. Then it says... Love is kind. Love is kind. That probably wasn't very kind. All right. All right. So, see, that was not, that was an example of not being kind. Kind is actually practical. It does something beneficial for a person. So, love is patient. Then love is kind. Love is not jealous, it might say, but actually the real Greek word is love is not envious. That means it does not envy your neighbor's house, spouse, blouse, birdhouse, or any other house for that matter, okay? (laughs) just so we get that one straight. Then it says that uh, love is not only patient and kind or envious, but it is not boastful. 
That means that love does not blow a lot of hot air around about itself. Literally, you know what the Greek says? It says that love is not a windbag. You know any windbags? Yep, you might know some windbags. All right. So then it says also love is not proud. You know what that means? It means that love does not think it is better than other people. Love does not think it's better than other people. Love is not above the law. Hmm. You can think about our politics there, all right? Uh, But we won't bring that into it. It also says that love is not rude. You know what that means? It means that love respects people. Love is not a jerk, is what that is really saying. It also says that love does not demand its own way. What that means is love is not selfish. Love thinks of the other person. You know, I was once uh, meeting with this guy. He was having marital problems. And he, you know, finally got exasperated with me. He goes, why am I the one that always has to go first and be selfless? And I said, could you imagine Jesus saying, Papa, why is it? Why do I always have to be first? Why do I always have to be the one to sacrifice first? And it kind of got the point there. Also says that, Uh, Love is not irritable. That literally means that love is not a hothead. Skip, you can put the picture up. I think you get the point there. It also says that love keeps no record of wrongs. What that means is love forgives. Love forgives. Love does not hold a person hostage because of what they have done wrong. Love does not, in an argument, when you've forgiven what they had done previously, in the heat of the argument, you don't throw it back in the person's face. You know, what what terrifies me, we don't have time this morning, but in Matthew 6, Jesus says, you know, if you will not forgive, if you will not forgive others, the Father will not forgive you. I'll tell you, that, that thing terrifies me, and I hope it does terrify you. It also says love does not rejoice about injustice. That literally means love does not rejoice about evil. By the way, that would have to do with what you're watching on television, what you're reading, what you're listening to. It means that I'm not listening to gossip. I don't like the tawdry and the salacious. But rather it rejoices over truth, the good. It rejoices over truth when truth and the good wins out. So again, think about what you're listening to, what you're reading, what you're watching. Is it, is it about good winning out? Is it about Jesus? Is it about exalting his values and whatnot? Then it also says this, that love never gives up. It never loses faith. What that means is, is love keeps on loving because it's the right thing to do. And then it also says that it is always hopeful. In other words, love believes that in the end, love will win. Don't quit just because the people around you aren't loving. Love will win out, is what Paul is saying here. It is also, it will endure through every circumstance. In other words, love never quits. So Paul tells us what love is. And he says to the, to the Philippian believers, I want you to love. Now watch this. He says, I want you to love more and more. That's quantitative. So he's saying, let's take patience, for example. He's saying that I want you to love and be more and more patient, Philippians. So for example, when you're in Price Chopper, on one Philippian way. And you're in the checkout line. And the checkout person is slow. You know, they're just learning the ropes and whatnot. You're patient with them. But Paul says, I don't want you to stop there. 
I want you to be abundantly patient. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn to the person behind you who's got 20 items in a 15-item aisle, and I want you to say, you know what? You look kind of busy. Why don't you just cut in front of me? Now, that will blow that person away. Try, I, I tried that. That will blow them away. They'll go, what, what do you want before? I mean, they'll wonder what you're on if you do that. But that's what he's saying. I want you not only to practice love, but he goes, I want you to do it more and more. It's a quantitative thing. But Paul doesn't end there. Then he says, I want you to love, practice love more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. And what he's talking about there is not quantitatively, but qualitatively. And he's telling us that qualitative love involves two things. First of all, qualitative love means having knowledge. Having knowledge. Did you know that there are two kinds of knowledge? Just If you're with me. I play off audience participation. The first kind of knowledge is we're good at this. It's informational. It's intellectual knowledge. It's, it's, it's up here. And we Americans tend to be very good at it. You know, in fact, we love to accrue and we love to gain knowledge. I want you to think about this. Do you know that this generation of Christians has more knowledge about this book than any of the previous Christians since Jesus Christ? No, think about this. Uh, Skip, put up the picture. We have more study Bibles. Put up that picture, Skip. We have more study. Look at that. We, we have the Jeremiah study Bible. We have the Ryrie study Bible. I mean, we've got the NLT study Bible. We've got so many study Bibles. We've got study Bibles on study Bibles. Then we've got tools. We've got tons of tools. Can you put those up, Skip? You just go to any bookstore. We have so many Bible tools. We have so much software. We have so many conferences. We've got so much biblical knowledge, far more than any other Christians who have ever lived. And guess what? We are the greatest spiritual pygmies that have ever lived. No, isn't that mind-blowing to think about that? To think about how much knowledge we have, and yet the vast majority of American Christians are spiritual pygmies. You know what absolutely terrifies me? What absolutely terrifies me are the Pharisees. The Pharisees were incredible. These were the most spiritual people In Jesus' time, do you know that they had, for the most part, the Old Testament memorized? Can you? The Old Testament memorized. Or at least vast portions of it. So these guys are really spiritual. But listen to what Jesus says about them in Matthew 23. Skip, can you put up the first scripture in Matthew chapter 23? It says this. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like religious people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? Then he also made this damning declaration. Go ahead to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They don't practice what they teach. What Jesus is saying is that the people who had the most spiritual knowledge 2,000 years ago were religious frauds. They knew about God, but they did 
not know God. What were they lacking? They were lacking the second aspect of knowledge, experiential knowledge. Now listen to what Jesus says about the Pharisees and Sadducees in Luke chapter 11 and verse 42. Skip, put that up. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you are careful to tithe at even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. Can you believe this? They didn't know the love of God. They did not know the love of God. These are the most spiritual people back 2,000 years ago. They talked about the love of God. They debated the love of God. They had small groups concerning the love of God, but they didn't know the love of God. You know, can you, how many here are parents? You have teenagers. Raise them high. I bet you've, I bet you've said as parents, I bet you said to your, ki- you know, your teenager at one time, I want you to clean your room, right? I want you to clean your room. Imagine you tell them, I want you to clean the room, and then two hours later they come downstairs and you say, well, hey, you know, did you clean your room? And they say, well, not exactly, but I want you to know that I studied on cleaning rooms. I also looked it up in the Greek. And guess what? I called some of my friends and we had a small group and we discussed what a clean room would look like. How many of you would be impressed? You know, how many of you would just be impressed as parents about that? Anybody would be impressed? No, you wouldn't be impressed with that at all. And you know what impressed me, you know, when I went to India? I've gone several times to India. You know what really impressed me about the Indians? And it wasn't the stark poverty. It wasn't even the brutal, unjust caste system. It wasn't even the revolting temple prostitution that went on in India. That got my attention. But you know what really impressed me? What impressed me was the depth, I mean, the incredible faith of these Indian pastors. Now, here is the dichotomy. Here comes this white boy to India, and I have probably 10 times, no, this is true, I have probably 10 times the knowledge these guys do of the Bible. And yet these guys put me under the table when it came to knowing God and having a depth of walk. No, they absolutely put me under. You know what? You know what the difference is? I know it all here, but I'm practicing it more and more in here. These guys, these Indian pastors, they knew very little of the Bible. But guess what? What they knew, what they knew, in faith, they were obedient. They had experiential knowledge of God, which is greater. In fact, they knew One of the great verses in the Bible, you know what one of the great, this is one of the greatest verses in the Bible. If you have this in your life, you are smoking. You know what it is? 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And you, you can read the context for yourself with the Apostle Paul. But this guy was in need. And God didn't answer his prayer the way he wanted it answered. This is the great Apostle Paul. And said, God said this to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness, in your situation. And let me tell you something about these Indian pastors. It was mind-blowing. These guys knew it. No, they knew. They don't live in fear. See, most of us live in fear. You know why we live in fear? Because we're not sure that God will be there. These guys knew. They've experienced the sufficiency of grace. They know that God's enough when they are sick. They know that God's enough when when they don't have anything on the table. They know that God's enough to supply for their family. Wouldn't it be great if you knew that you knew that you knew? These guys knew it. See, they knew 
God, well, we got to move on. So the, the second aspect of qualitative love is this. The first aspect is knowledge. He says that I pray that your love will grow more and more in knowledge. And then he says in depth of insight. That's the second aspect of qualitative knowledge. You know what that means? It means being able to take love, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, and practically apply it to your situation. The Apostle John, the beloved disciple, he wrote an incredible line in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. You say, well, what is that? Can you put it up, Skip? But anyone, now watch this, John says this, anyone who does not love does not know God. Wow! Anyone, now look what it says, who does not love, like 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4, you don't know God. You might think you know him, but you don't know him. And then it says, for God is love. No, that's mind-boggling, because he's saying that God and love are synonymous. Do you understand what he's saying? He's saying that everything that God does in your life, no, think about your situation now, Everything that's happening in your life is founded in love. No. Everything that happens, everything he does is founded in love. That's absolutely a mind-blowing thing. So if you want to understand God, now listen to me, you want to know God, you want to be like God, then 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7 needs to be literally, you need to become one with it. That's the only way you're going to understand it. God says, my ways are above your ways. My, way, you, my thoughts are above your thoughts. The reason what he's talking about is because we don't understand love. So I want to prove the point. I want to close with a very vivid illustration and example of just how God loves, because it's not the way we generally do it. So here's the example I want to give you. It's in Luke chapter 15. Now, now, don't let familiarity breed contempt here. We generally know this as the prodigal son, okay? But that's a lousy title. A much better title would be the perfect loving father. Because you see... The prodigal son is not so much about the prodigal son. It's about how the perfect father in heaven loves. So, Skip, let's, let's have the story. Jesus starts out like this. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, remember. Now, remember this. The father that you see here is a picture of God the father. The father who loves perfect all right and he's got two sons the younger son i get this the younger son comes up to him he's probably 17 or 18 years old the guy's cocky he's arrogant he's prideful and he says you know what dad i really don't care about our relationship very much but i sure do like what you got wish you were dead you know and i thought about that statement you know we can get after the younger son but you know what what the holy spirit drove in my heart He goes, Frank, how about you? Do you just love me? No, no, do you just love me or do you love what I can do for you? Do you love me, Frank, when I make sure that you have enough money and you have food on the table? When when you get Susan, when, when Susan behaves herself, when your kids behave. When, you're, when, 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 when you know your health is perfect. Is that when you love me, Frank? Or do you really just love me for me? No, no. Do, we're gonna be, you're going to be tested. Do you really love Papa just 
for him. Now here's, now here's the mind-blowing thing. You got a 17 or 18-year-old cocky kid. He says, I wish you were dead. I want the inheritance. What would you do? I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd slap him silly and then boot him out. You know what this father does? The perfect father. I want you to follow this thing through. The perfect father gives the kid his part of the inheritance. A million bucks. How many would you, how many of here would give your 17 or 18 year old cocky kid, arrogant, rebellious kid, and give him a million bucks? Well, he does. You know why? You know why he does that? See, none of us know why. What does God the Father care about more than anything else? Anybody know? It, it, tongues doesn't work here, all right? So just, or at least an interpretation. Re, he loves relationship. He loves relationship. Guess what he doesn't have with his son right now? He doesn't have a He didn't have a son. He does not have a son. So he's got to let him go. And he gives him, now listen to me, he gives him enough rope to hang himself. The kid may hang himself. But he's got to do it if he's going to have relationship. So watch what happens. Skip, put up the next. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. Wow, what a shock. This kid wastes his money in wild living. You know, it says that the son went to a distant land. What was he looking for? Anybody know? What was he looking for? I'll tell you what he was looking for. He was looking for what all lost people are looking for. There's an empty void in every person's life. It's called a black hole. It's a black hole. Let me ask you this question. Do you think there's anything out there, anything out there that can fill that black hole in your life here? Anything? No. So there's nothing finite that can fill the black hole that's infinite. You know, anybody remember Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band? Katmandu, all we got to do is go to Katmandu. I don't know what he thought he was going to find in Katmandu, but he thought somehow in Katmandu he was going to solve the inner problem that he had, the inner void in his life. Trust me, he didn't find it in Katmandu. This young punk, this rebellious son, he thought he was going to find it in party and skip, put it up. I love this. And about this time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. Do you think this young punk, this rebellious kid, this selfish kid, this prideful kid, he learned something about himself and people? I'll tell you, he did learn something. You know what he learned? Now, listen to me, especially if you're not a believer. Because I used to tell my kids this. The world's a tough place out there, and the world will never love you. They don't even know what it is. You're only good to the world in what you can give them and what you can produce. Oh, I played sports. You're a hero one day, ladies and gentlemen, and you are a goat the next day. They don't care if you were a hero in game two. If you're terrible in game three, they will boo you. They will hate you. I used to tell my kids, I said, the world is a brutal place. Don't ever fool yourself. It's a dog-eat-dog world, and they will chew you up, and they will spit you up. And the moment you can't please them, you're done. You are gone. You know, and how ironic that this kid... 
gets the exact same medicine that he gave to his father. Isn't that interesting? His friends treated him the exact same way that he treated his father. Skip, can you put now put up the next set of verses? Verses 15 and 16. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him. He's starving, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. Ah! Now, let me tell you something. That is a great place for pride, rebellion, and arrogance to end up. You know why? Because it's the only place that pride, arrogance, and rebellion can be broken is in the pig pen. Is right in the pig pen. Now, why is it, if that's true, why is it so often we bail people out when they're in the pig pen? Rather than letting perfect love, the Father, do his work. How many here, does anyone here think that the perfect Father who loved didn't know where his son was? Anybody? I'm going to tell you he knew exactly where his son was. He knew that his kid was in a pig pen. He's connected, yet he leaves them in the pig pen. Why? Why does he leave them in the pig pen? I mean, here we are. We're in suburbia. What do we suburbanite parents do? Well, I'll tell you what we do. We jump in the car. We drive up to the pig pen. We open the car door. We grab the kid. Enough is enough. Quit being an idiot. And we rescue him. Why do we do that? Isn't it about embarrassment? Isn't it that we don't want our little baby to suffer, to experience pain? But I find it amazing that the perfect father, the father who loves doesn't do that. He leaves the kid in the pig pen. You got to ask yourself, does he not love the son? Of course he does. But you know what? This kid's hit the bottom of the barrel. He's lost everything. And the father doesn't rob him of the one thing he has left, which is what? The dignity of choice. He doesn't rob his son of the dignity of choice. Now watch what happens. Skip, put it out. Next verse is, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. This is the kid. And here I am, I'm dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. And I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Now that's got to be music to any parent's ears. He came to his senses. Now, how do we know that this kid came to a sense? How do we know that this arrogant, cocky, rebellious kid came to a sense? It's two words. Brokenness and repentance. Brokenness and repentance. In this kid's case, in his brokenness, he turned from his rebellion, his pride in his error. He turned back to his father in sorrow, seeking to make restitution and a soft heart. A humble heart. Let me tell you something. Listen to me because the American church is failing badly. You do not have repentance. You do not have genuine repentance until you have brokenness over your sin. You are broken about your sin. You seek to pay restitution to the person or persons that you hurt. And you now have a soft heart. 
humble heart seeking to be obedient to God. This son, this son had all three of those things. And I want you to know, you know what made this possible? Do you know what made this possible for this kid to come to a census? The father's love. It was the father's love that paved the way for repentance, for restitution, and for reconciliation. Now watch what happens. Watch this. So he returned home to his father, and while he was a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on. Get a ring for his finger and sandals at his feet, and kill the fatted calf. We have been fattening. We must celebrate with the feast, for the son of mine was dead, and now he has returned. He was lost, but now... Now he has been found. Let the party begin. Anyone who says that God doesn't like to party after he hasn't read the Bible. <laughs> this is something to party about. This is a happy ending. Please don't miss two things. First, the father saw his son a long way off. What does that tell you about this father? This son had hurt him badly, but he never wrote him off. See, love always hopes. Love always hopes. Love believes the best. Love believes that in the end, it's, love will win out. No, love will win out. You can't quit. You cannot quit. He believed that. And every day he was looking for his son to come. And one day he's looking out over the horizon. And what does he see? He sees his boy. He sees his boy on the hill. Now, this is the second thing I want you to see. Now, there's a huge distance. The father's here and the son's over here and they got to get together. Now, there's a crowd gathering. There's a servant there. There's a neighbor. They're watching this spectacle. Now, the question is, how do they get together? You got two choices here. You could make the son, you could make him grovel and cut grass, right? You could make him humiliate himself all the way to come back to the father. That was one thing. Or there's another way. The father goes to the son. And this is what the father does. He hikes up his robes, which is a total embarrassment in the Eastern culture. He then begins to run, which is another embarrassment. You don't do that in the Eastern culture. And he runs to his son and he embraces him. He humbles himself completely. This is what the father will do for you. This is what Jesus Christ did. There's a huge gap between us and God. How are we going to get together? The only way we're going to get together is for God to come to us and humble himself. Why do you think Jesus Christ did on the cross? What do you think he was doing? The total act of humility. He was naked. Blood was running down so that you and I could be connected back together. That's love. That is love. In fact, the only time in the Bible you see God running is right here. And you say, why did God run? I'll tell you why he ran. Because you know what left? I'll tell you what left. What left was a cocky kid. It was a rebellious kid. It was a prideful and arrogant kid. And what did that father see coming back up over the hill? He saw a son. He saw a son. And it broke his heart. He couldn't handle it, and he ran. Skip play the video. <laughs> 